You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I saw a man in gray standing in a path that the cows had made among the pines, and I was standing in the same path, loading my gun, and he aimed dead for my chest. I was green and didn't jump to one side, as we learned to do afterward, but thought I was a goner, sure. Just then my ramrod slipped from my hand, and I stooped over quick and caught it before it reached the ground. And as I rose up, I saw my enemy's gun smoking in his hand, and he staring at me in amazement. When I took my overcoat off, I found that his ball had struck the coat just at the collar, at the back of the neck, and had cut a strip right down the back. He had made a center shot just as I caught my ramrod. Sergeant Frank B. Nickerson, 8th Ohio, Kimball's Brigade. We went into an open field through a gate in a stone fence. My gun was third, and as we passed through this gate, one hub caught on the gate post, and one of the hind traces broke. I dismounted and helped the driver to fix it by cutting a hole in the trace, and we moved on. The delay was but for a moment, but during that time a shell from the enemy struck the off-horse of the piece next behind me, passed through him into the saddle horse, taking off the driver's leg, and then exploded in this horse, and one piece of shell took off the foot of a recruit named Gray, who was standing nearby. The wounded men were carried to the rear, and in a surprisingly short time the guns were again in motion. The whole battery filed into the field and then through gaps torn in the stone fence. Sergeant Clement D. Fishburne, Rockbridge Artillery, Garnett's Brigade. Welcome to episode number 142 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. With the last episode, we laid out the background to the Battle of Kernstown, which took place in March 1862. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, Stonewall Jackson had received word from his cavalry commander, Turner Ashby, on Friday, March 21st, informing him that it appeared Nathaniel Banks' Federals were quitting the Shenandoah. And so Stonewall, realizing that he was on the verge of failing in his mission to keep the Yankees in the valley, put his army in motion the next morning. And by nightfall on Saturday, after a grueling forced march, with some units covering almost 28 miles, the valley army was within a day's march of Winchester. What Stonewall would do next depended largely on what Ashby reported. And Turner Ashby had a lot to report. 
On Saturday, he had engaged in some spirited skirmishing with a federal force just south of Winchester, near the tiny hamlet of Kernstown. Although Ashby only had three guns with him, one of those cannons struck a telling blow when a shell fragment knocked Union Division Commander James Shields from the, from the saddle. Surgeon George K. Johnston of the 1st Michigan Cavalry was there when Shields was hit and left this account of the incident. Quote, During the forenoon, Ashby's cavalry began to annoy our pickets, and as the day wore on, became more and more demonstrative. By 2 or 3 p.m., Colonel Broadhead of the 1st Cavalry became convinced that the enemy was in force not far away and that his designs were aggressive. He so advised General Shields, but the general discredited that view. But a little later, the cavalry officers on picket became certain of the imminence of the situation. Again, a message was sent to Shields. Then, with a part of his staff, he came galloping up to the cavalry headquarters and still with an air of incredulity, demanded to know where the enemy was who had so disturbed the cavalry. The colonel, a little nettled at the manner of the general, pointed to a range of hills three-fourths of a mile away and running directly across the valley pike. The general, still doubting, rode on at full pace toward the hills, accompanied by his staff, Colonel Broadhead, and myself. When within a short distance of the hills, he halted and placed his field glasses to his eyes. He had scarcely done so when a shell from the ridge exploded within a few feet of our group. General Shields fell from the saddle and struck the earth several feet away. In a moment I was at his side and found him limp and senseless. A fragment of shell had struck his chest and made sad work with his left shoulder. In a few moments he began to revive and as quickly as possible was removed to Winchester, where for several days he suffered greatly. As he was the only general officer in the vicinity, the command devolved on Colonel Nathan Kimball of the 14th Indiana. End quote. The shell fragment broke the general's left arm above the elbow, and as Surgeon Johnston stated, as Shields was evacuated back to Winchester, command passed to Colonel Nathan Kimball. In the deepening twilight on Saturday evening, Kimball succeeded in driving off the pesky rebel cavalry. After being driven off by Kimball, Turner Ashby withdrew his small command six miles southward to Newtown. Both sides drew erroneous conclusions from the fighting on Saturday. The Federal commanders, Banks and Shields, didn't take the skirmishing with the Confederate cavalry seriously, and remained convinced that Stonewall Jackson was still far away and on the defensive. Meanwhile, the fog of war was just as thick at Jackson's headquarters on Saturday night. That was because, as you'll probably remember from the last episode, Turner Ashby reported that only four regiments of Federal infantry and a battery or two of artillery remained in the neighborhood of Winchester, this despite the fact that Shields' entire division of some 9,000 men was still in the area. But Stonewall accepted Ashby's report at face value, and so in light of his orders from Joe Johnston, his duty became clear. He must attack the few Yankees remaining at Winchester without delay in order to draw Banks back into the valley. The stage was thus set for a bloody comedy of errors as Jackson, supposing he was striking only a small federal rear guard, 
would, in fact, run headlong into an entire division of Yankees. In the last episode, we shared a quote from a Confederate infantryman describing Saturday's forced march, in which he boasted that quote, "We marched as only Jackson's men could march." End quote. But that fellow was clearly looking back at events through rose-colored glasses, since in March 1862, the soldiers of the Valley Army had yet to earn their nickname of Stonewall's Foot Cavalry, and that Saturday's forced march had, in fact, Been a miserable experience for most of those involved in trudging down the Valley Turnpike. Hundreds upon hundreds of weary men dropped out along the line of march, and due to that heavy straggling, Jackson likely carried fewer than thirty-five hundred men into the Strasburg area that evening. But although his force had been whittled down by straggling, Jackson expected little resistance. From the token federal force, he believed to be all that remained in and around Winchester. At first light on Sunday morning, March twenty-third, he sent four companies of infantry from the Stonewall Brigade marching north to reinforce Turner Ashby, but the rest of the tired Valley Army didn't set out until nearly two hours later. In Winchester itself, despite the previous day's skirmish, Nathaniel Banks and the injured James Shields had started off that Sunday morning, as we just mentioned, still clueless that Stonewall Jackson was barreling down the Valley Turnpike. Banks, in fact, still planned to leave for Washington later that day for another conference. But Nathan Kimball, left in command in the field due to Shields' wounding, was more vigilant, and on Sunday morning he ordered several companies of the Eighth Ohio to carry out a reconnaissance west of the Turnpike toward Kernstown. The patrol from the Eighth Ohio felt their way over an elevation known as Pritchard's Hill and across the stream without incident. But then the officer leading the reconnaissance, Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Sawyer. Saw a battery of rebel artillery about four hundred yards away, over on the Valley Pike, in the process of deploying along a rise of ground. Sawyer rode forward for a closer look and saw dismounted Confederate cavalry as well as some infantry tucked behind the low ridge. At that, Sawyer galloped back to his men, and the patrol withdrew, having learned that Turner Ashby, so it would seem, had returned. Ashby had, in fact, returned, reinforced with those four companies of infantry that Stonewall had forwarded from the Second Virginia. At nine a.m., one of Ashby's guns let go the first shot of the Battle of Kernstown. The round exploded harmlessly, but it galvanized Kimball into action. Riding at Pritchard's Hill, Nathan Kimball immediately grasped the importance of the elevation. He later explained that quote. The position commanded the plain or valley and village in front, and to the left a small valley, the woods and hills to the front and right. No better position could be found to cover the approaches to Winchester with the forces I had. End quote. Having settled on Pritchard's Hill as key ground, Kimball rapidly concentrated forces atop it. He brought up ten rifled guns, which were capable of hitting anything that might come down the turnpike. Kimball also brought up the closest available infantry regiment, the untested 67th Ohio, to clear out a band of rebels in a strip of timber bordering the western base of Pritchard's Hill. 
The 67th cleared the woods of enemy skirmishers and then moved into a supporting position behind the Federal guns atop the hill. Kimball also advanced the 5th Ohio to support the batteries. Confronted with this overwhelming force of Yankee infantry and artillery, Ashby's cavalrymen fell back across the stream. The four companies of Confederate infantrymen, commanded by Captain John Quincy Adams Nadenbausch, were amused by the discomposure of their mounted comrades, but their amusement was short-lived since the rebel infantry were supporting Ashby's guns and Union counter-battery fire soon fell uncomfortably close. Not many minutes passed, though, before Ashby ordered Nadenbausch to take his men over to the right of the turnpike and probe northward. Remarkably, Ashby still seems to have believed that the Federals had no more than four regiments in the neighborhood, and he evidently hoped that by moving his infantry over to the opposite side of the turnpike, he could simply outflank the troublesome Yankees on Pritchard's Hill and sweep into Winchester unopposed. But once Nadenbausch started to advance, his men quickly ran into a hornet's nest of resistance. From atop Pritchard's Hill, Kimball had an unobstructed view of the Confederate movement, and he acted decisively to counter it. A few minutes before 10 o'clock, Kimball sent his former command, the 14th Indiana, over to help the Federal units to the east of the turnpike check the rebel advance. Ashby at last seemed to recognize that there were more Yankees, many more Yankees, in the area than he'd thought, and he wasted little time in sending a courier to recall Nadenbausch. For some inexplicable reason, though, Ashby failed to send a messenger to Stonewall Jackson with the news that the Federals appeared to be in the area in more force than originally thought. At any rate, by 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, the small force of Confederate cavalry and infantry under Ashby's command had been pushed back to a patch of woods a half-mile southeast of Kernstown. Their Yankee opponents, though, kept a respectful distance, with their skirmishers halting in the muddy meadows 700 yards north of Ashby's new line. An uncertain lull then settled over the field, punctuated by a sporadic artillery exchange. A little before seven that morning, just before setting out on the day's march, an optimistic Stonewall Jackson had sent a message to Joe Johnston, saying, quote, With the blessing of an ever-kind providence, I hope to be in the vicinity of Winchester this evening, end quote. And it appeared that Banks and Shields would accommodate Stonewall, an aide returning from the field to Banks' headquarters in Winchester shortly before noon, told the commanding general that it seemed the only Confederates present that morning were just those that had been encountered the day before. Banks, therefore, decided to leave for Washington as planned. As for Shields, he had already made up his mind about Stonewall's intentions, even before that reassuring report that the rebels were present in no greater strength than on Saturday. You see, earlier on Sunday morning, Shields had told one of his brigade commanders, Colonel Jeremiah C. Sullivan, that, quote, There is no danger of Jackson's fighting again, that he knew him, and Jackson was afraid of him. End quote. Once the battle opened and it became apparent that the Confederates were indeed fighting again, the feisty Shields, from his bed in Winchester, didn't hesitate to bombard Kimball with messages. 
Shields read every report brought to him from the battlefield during the day and dictated replies to the 4th Ohio surgeon, H.M. Maccabee, whom Shields pressed into service as an informal aide-de-camp. According to Maccabee, Shields issued no orders to Kimball that weren't discretionary. Maccabee said, quote, I think he regarded himself to be in command of his division, but not an active command on the field. And I think that is the light he intended his orders or messages to be taken. That is, he did not propose to make the dispositions of the forces on the field. His messages were mainly addressed to Colonel Kimball in the shape of suggestions or general instructions as to how this or that should be done, not as orders for the specific movements of this or that body of troops. End quote. Despite Maccabee's notions of Shields' intentions, it's not hard to imagine how Kimball, in the midst of managing a battle, viewed the steady stream of messages with suggestions and or instructions from his incapacitated superior back in Winchester. In any case, Kimball disregarded Shields' first suggestion, which was delivered by Shields' assistant adjutant general, Major Harry G. Armstrong, a little after 10 a.m., that he push a column up the valley turnpike to take Ashby from behind. Kimball was less certain than Shields that nothing greater than rebel cavalry lay before him, and he opted to hold his ground and await developments. Kimball strengthened his defensive posture and ignored Major Armstrong's repeated admonition that he advance against Ashby. Kimball later explained his stance, saying, quote, now, it was true the enemy's position, as represented by Armstrong, was as stated, so far as could be seen. But believing that the enemy had other forces near at hand, I did not propose to walk into the net. End quote. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The only one destined to walk into a net that Sunday was Stonewall Jackson. At noon, with the lead element of his march column, the Stonewall Brigade, having reached a point two miles south of Kernstown, 
Jackson could hear the low rumble of artillery from Ashby's continued skirmishing. Jackson allowed the Stonewall Brigade, commanded by Brigadier General Richard B. Garnett, as well as the just-arriving brigades of Colonels Samuel B. Fulkerson and Jesse S. Burks, to file off the turnpike and rest. And the weary Confederate soldiers welcomed the break. Most had marched over 20 miles the day before, and all had covered at least 12 miles that morning. More straggling on Sunday's march had continued to whittle down Jackson's force, and it's likely Stonewall carried perhaps 3,000 tired and foot-sore men into the fight at Kernstown. In Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, Peter Cossens writes, quote, As the soldiers grabbed what rest they could among the trees, Jackson rode forward with aides George Junkin and Sandy Pendleton to reconnoiter the landscape. He intended to wait until the next morning to attack, since offering battle on the Sabbath was repugnant to him, and besides, fewer than six hours of daylight remained. But what Jackson saw on the horizon changed his thinking. Clearly silhouetted on Pritchard's Hill were the ten rifled cannons that Kimball had assembled. Not visible were the three regiments of Union infantry standing in support on the far side of the hill. Neglecting to confer with Ashby, Jackson was also unaware of the Federals east of the Valley Pike with whom his cavalry chief had earlier skirmished. Reasoning that the Federal gun crews on Pritchard's Hill could observe his army spread along the pike and readily gauge his strength, and fearful that if left unmolested, they might either deny him a lunge at the Yankee rear guard or call for reinforcements during the night to compel him to give battle to a larger force, Jackson elected to attack at once. Stonewall thought that God would forgive him for spilling blood on the Sabbath, but his misgivings regarding the matter are apparent in a letter he later wrote to his wife, Anna. He told Anna, quote, I felt it my duty to attack in consideration of the ruinous effect that might result from postponing the battle until the morning. So far as I can see, my course was a wise one, the best that I could do under the circumstances, though very distasteful to my feelings. And I hope and pray to our Heavenly Father that I may never again be circumstanced as on that day. End quote. But despite his earnest prayer to be spared another Sabbath day clash of arms, we'll see that Kernstown would not be the only battle that Stonewall ended up fighting on a Sunday during the course of the Valley Campaign. At Kernstown, though, Stonewall would try to minimize the Sabbath day bloodshed by outflanking the Yankees. Not knowing that he was outnumbered three to one, his plan was to maneuver west of the turnpike, seize a piece of high ground called Sandy Ridge, which lay west of Pritchard's Hill, turn the enemy right flank, and then strike the valley pike in the Federal rear, allowing him to rout or annihilate the enemy and march into Winchester. As a preliminary measure, Jackson directed Colonel Fulkerson to take his brigade and sweep the length of Barton's Woods, a tract of timber which stretched northward from the spot where the weary and footsore Confederate soldiers were resting alongside the Valley Pike. Fulkerson's small brigade, composed of just the 23rd Virginia and 37th Virginia, advanced and reached the northern edge of Barton's Woods at 2 p.m. without incident. The Stonewall Brigade, less the 5th Virginia, which Jackson posted at a fence near the turnpike, trailed Fulkerson through the timber. 
Meanwhile, without informing his brigade commanders, Jackson detached artillery batteries from the brigades and grouped them into an artillery reserve, which would be subject solely to his orders. Stonewall instructed Colonel Jesse Burks to support those two dozen or so guns with the Irish Battalion and two of his three regiments. Burke's 3rd Regiment, the 48th Virginia, was to remain to the rear to guard the Army's trains. And when we talk about an Army's trains, we aren't talking about choo-choo trains, of course, but rather the Army's supply wagons and the wagons bearing the Army's reserve infantry and artillery ammunition, and then also the various units' baggage wagons. Taken together, those make up the Army's trains. Anyway, back to the battlefield, where Stonewall's three brigade commanders, Garnett, Fulkerson, and Burks, all complied with their orders, which they had received through staff officers Pendleton and Junkin. But crucially, none of them had the least idea whatsoever as to Jackson's overall battle plan. Garnett, as second-in-command, had no more insight into Stonewall's intentions than did the lowest private. As Garnett later commented on his predicament, quote, It is almost unnecessary to say that it was extremely embarrassing and dispiriting for my superior officer to withhold from me his confidence and the requisite information to guide and direct me in the intelligent dispatch of my duties, and whose position even I might by many accidents of service have been called on to fill, end quote. Meanwhile, on the other side of the lines, couriers continued to pass back and forth between Pritchard's Hill and Shields' bedside. At 1.30, Kimball received a second discretionary order from Shields, again suggesting that he attack. But Kimball again chose to ignore his superior's attempt to control the battle by remote control. Kimball had glimpsed the advance of enemy troops through Barton's woods and knew it meant trouble. Kimball later bluntly stated, quote, Convinced that the general did not comprehend the situation, the strength of the enemy, nor the positions held by the respective forces, and satisfied that from his bed in the city five miles to the rear he could not properly conduct the movements, which might be required by the circumstances of the situation, I determined to remain on the defensive. End quote. The Federal rifled guns on Pritchard's Hill acknowledged the rebels' presence along the northern fringe of Barton's Woods with a rapid rain of shot and shell. Remember, in Stonewall's plan, the Confederates' move north through that tract of timber was preliminary to the seizure of Sandy Ridge and the outflanking of the Union position on Pritchard's Hill. And Stonewall's plan was a good one, except that he still didn't realize how badly he was outnumbered and he was rushing into an assault that he was throwing together on the fly. As a result, he deployed his forces piecemeal and recklessly against the Union batteries. He galloped forward to the northern edge of the woods and told Fulkerson to turn the flank of the enemy guns on Pritchard's Hill, seeming to discount the fact that in crossing the intervening three-quarters of a mile-wide meadow, Fulkerson's two regiments would be subjected to the full wrath of the Yankee guns. Jackson sent orders for Garnett to follow in support of Fulkerson's advance. But either Jackson didn't clearly communicate his wishes to Fulkerson, 
or the brigade commander misunderstood his objective, for rather than moving so as to outflank the Yankee guns, he moved out directly toward the enemy strongpoint, orienting his advance on a small grove of trees at the western base of Pritchard's Hill. Fulkerson threw his command into column with the two-company frontage, with the 37th Virginia leading and the 23rd Virginia trailing. As the 600 men left the cover of the timber and advanced into the open, Pritchard's Hill erupted in smoke and fire as the Yankees, in Fulkerson's words, quote, instantly opened a galling fire upon us, end quote. Marshy soil and a patchwork of fences and dips and rises in the terrain slowed the Confederate advance. And then, to his consternation, Fulkerson's hopes of finding a respite among the sheltering trees on the western slope of Pritchard's Hill were shattered when Captain Lucius Robinson's Battery L, 1st Ohio Light Artillery, unlimbered 400 yards northwest of the grove and took aim at the 37th Virginia. At the same moment, Fulkerson saw a line of enemy infantry, the 84th Pennsylvania, pass through the line of enemy guns on the hill and take up a position alongside the grove. Dismayed by this turn of events, Fulkerson turned his column to the left and sought shelter in a strip of woods near the base of, the, of Sandy Ridge, where his men endured more pounding by the Union cannon. The absence of Garnett's supporting columns also undoubtedly helped convince Fulkerson to break off the assault on Pritchard's Hill. Lieutenant Junkin delivered Jackson's order that the Stonewall Brigade support Fulkerson, but in doing so, he neglected to tell Garnett why Fulkerson was advancing, if Junkin even knew himself. At any rate, Garnett, in turn, did a poor job of communicating orders to his regimental commanders. Garnett was with Colonel Arthur C. Cummings of the 33rd Virginia, his lead regiment, when Junkin found him, and Garnett accompanied that regiment into the meadow, trailing Fulkerson's force by 200 yards. But word of the movement never reached the rest of the Stonewall Brigade, and so the commanders of the 2nd, 4th, and 27th Virginia hung back with their regiments in Barton's Woods, while Garnett and the 33rd advanced. Once out in the open, the 33rd Virginia was hit with the same concentrated artillery fire that had caused Fulkerson to veer to the left. Ignorant of Fulkerson's objective, and, quote, feeling confident that if the regiment followed its present line of march, it would suffer severely, end quote, Garnett also redirected the 33rd Virginia westward. Fearing left several hundred yards behind Fulkerson, the 33rd had no trees in which to hide, so Garnett hustled the regiment over to the far slope of Sandy Ridge. There, as Colonel Cummings and his 275 officers and men caught their breath, Garnett assessed the situation. He later said, quote, I was in a wooded, rolling, and broken country and knew nothing of the strength of the enemy in front. End quote. In addition, the rest of the Stonewall Brigade was nowhere to be seen, and neither was Fulkerson. But even if united, Garnett calculated the 33rd Virginia and Fulkerson's two regiments could muster no more than 800 men. After mulling all this over, Garnett decided the best course of action was to pull the 33rd back to Barton's Woods. Meanwhile, Jackson had taken charge of the stalled regiments of the Stonewall Brigade, dispatching Sandy Pendleton with orders to start them toward Sandy Ridge. Pendleton found the colonels of the 2nd and 4th Virginia 
and by 2.30 had them on their way. The Yankee guns boomed a greeting as the two regiments left Barton's Woods. Just before the 4th Virginia emerged from the timber, Lieutenant John N. Nile had caught a glimpse of Stonewall Jackson. Nile later said, quote, He was sitting on his horse nearby. What was remarkable, his countenance was pale and showed anxiety. But there was a set about his jaw that boded no good for the foe. End quote. Stonewall's anxiety at that moment almost certainly stemmed from a concern that the Federals across the way might divine his intentions before he was able to concentrate enough force on Sandy Ridge to make a crushing flank attack. And so, to divert enemy attention from the buildup on Sandy Ridge, Jackson ordered Turner Ashby to launch a diversionary attack against the Union extreme left over on the eastern side of the turnpike. Although he had only 150 men under his direct control, Ashby nevertheless accepted the mission with this customary zeal. Splashing across the stream at about 2.30, Ashby and his horsemen overran a company of skirmishers from the 8th Ohio before being repulsed with the loss of one man killed and six wounded. But Ashby's move had accomplished its purpose, since Kimball feared the Confederate cavalryman's demonstration was actually the prelude to an attack on the Union left flank, and so Kimball kept the equivalent of five regiments in line of battle east of the Valley Turnpike, awaiting an enemy assault that never materialized. In the meantime, the piecemeal shuffle of Confederate units towards Sandy Ridge continued. Next to dash across the open meadows and run the gauntlet of Federal fire was the Rock Bridge Artillery. Then, entering the meadows close on the heels of the battery, was the 21st Virginia of Burke's Brigade, followed by the 27th Virginia of the Stonewall Brigade, and then another artillery battery. Meanwhile, Garnett had left the 33rd Virginia on the western slope of Sandy Ridge and found Fulkerson near the edge of the woods occupied by the latter's brigade. Neither officer was aware that the 2nd and 4th Virginia had completed their dash across the meadows and come to rest below a low rise some distance south of them. They also were unaware of the movement of the 21st and 27th Virginia, or that Jackson was forwarding artillery batteries to Sandy Ridge. In the dark as to Stonewall's battle plan, and unaware that friendly forces were coming up nearby, Garnett was concerned that he and Fulkerson were actually vulnerable to a federal counterattack. He therefore insisted that they must return with their commands to Barton's Woods, since the small force available to them could do no good on Sandy Ridge. Fulkerson disagreed, saying he would await further orders, but when Garnett said he would pull back the 33rd Virginia in any case, Fulkerson relented. The two then parted company to prepare their commands for the movement back to Barton's Woods. But while Garnett and Fulkerson were debating what to do, a couple or 300 yards south of their position, the two artillery batteries that Jackson had sent galloping forward unlimbered on the treeless eastern slope of Sandy Ridge. The 11 Confederate guns were in full view of the Union batteries on Pritchard's Hill. The Federal rifled guns were a mile distant, but 100 feet higher, and the Yankee cannon quickly scored the first hit, which was described at the very top of the podcast in that quote Tracy shared by Sergeant Clement, Finch, Clement Fishburne of the Rockbridge Artillery. Fishburne thought the round had exploded in a battery horse, 
but cannon shells sometimes follow strange trajectories, and the lethal round, in fact, passed through the unfortunate animal. Private John H. Worsham of the 21st Virginia was lying down like the rest of his regiment behind the Rockbridge artillery, and Worsham followed the course of the shell. After disemboweling the battery horse, the round, quote, descended and passed through our ranks and struck a stump not far off, spinning round like a top, and before it stopped, one of the company ran and jumped on it, taking it up and carrying it along as a trophy, end quote. As the action heated up, Stonewall Jackson had decided that his presence was much needed on Sandy Ridge, and he rode up just as the Rockbridge artillery opened an ineffectual return fire. Sergeant Fishburne said, quote, The greater part of the time we were engaged, we were engaged in an artillery duel. I could see but indistinctly the point where the enemy were stationed, but ascertained that the shells from my piece, a 12-pound howitzer, were not reaching the place, end quote. Realizing Fishburne's howitzer didn't have the range to duel with the Yankee rifled guns on Pritchard's Hill, Stonewall told the sergeant to reduce his fire to an occasional round, just enough to let the enemy, quote, know we were about, end quote. The men of Fishburne's section availed themselves of the opportunity to take cover behind a nearby stone fence, but the sergeant dutifully stood by the gun. Fishburne acknowledged being, quote, uncomfortably idle, so I occasionally helped the detachment next to me to run up their gun after each recoil. Matters of graver concern than the short fire of an outmatched howitzer soon demanded Stonewall Jackson's attention, though. The general was about to discover that he wasn't just tangling with a token force of Federals left behind in Winchester. Jackson's aide, Sandy Pendleton, had returned from scouting beyond the rebel batteries. From a high point on Sandy Ridge, he had obtained a clear view of Pritchard's Hill and the countryside beyond, and the panorama that unfolded before his eyes had unnerved him, for Federal infantry regiments and artillery batteries seemed to cover the landscape. A shaken Pendleton told Jackson that at least 10,000 Yankees stood between the Valley Army and Winchester, in that moment, Stonewall suddenly, suddenly realized that rather than having his way with a mere federal rear guard, he was, in fact, likely going to have to fight hard just to save his little army from destruction. Fearing that his men would be demoralized by the realization that they were, in reality, heavily outnumbered and caught in a bad spot, Jackson cautioned Pendleton, Say nothing about it. And then Stonewall added, we are in for it. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is We Are In For It, The First Battle of Kernstown by Gary L. Eckelbarger. As far as we know, there are really just two book-length studies out there devoted to the Battle of Kernstown. We Are In For It is one, and as for the other, well, it's not sitting on our Civil War bookshelf for a couple of reasons. One, the cheapest copy we could find is $85, which is more than a bit ridiculous for a 175-page book. And two, we couldn't imagine how that book could come close to the standard set by Echelbarger's work anyway. So there you go. Kind of by default, 
but mostly by impressing us with the level of research and writing, we are in for it is our recommendation if you guys want to really dive into the nitty-gritty of the Battle of Kernstown. You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we have quite a few people to thank for enlisting in the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade this past week, David and Karen and Kathy, and also Tom and George. Thanks, y'all. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we wrap up our discussion of the Battle of Kernstown. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.